Dotnet Rocks episode 933 with guest Steve Sanderson. Recorded live Wednesday, December 4th, 2013. This episode is brought to you by Telerik, offering the best in developer tools and support. Online at telerik.com. And by Franklin's.net, makers of Gesture Pack a powerful gesture recording and recognition system for Microsoft Connect for Windows developers. Details at gesturepak.com. And now, here are Carl and Richard. Thank you very much. Welcome back to Dotnet Rocks, Carl and Richard, and we're at NBC London in the fishbowl. We on are. On the show floor. Yes. Once again. Uh, and it, I, everybody's telling me NDC does not mean Norwegian Developers Conference. What does it mean? New Developers Conference. Oh, really? Yeah. Because <laughs> we're in London. Because we're in London. Yeah. Why would you have a Norwegian Developers Conference in London? I know. London? It's kind of crazy. That's when just... the, the passport control, they asked me, what's the name of the conference? I said, the Norwegian Developers Conference. And she gave me a cross-eyed like, you, look. You know you're not in Norway. Yeah, <laughs> really? <laughs> it's like, yeah, well, that's the name of the conference. I, I didn't it, name it. I'm just it going to it. <laughs> <laughs> hey, man, let's run the uh, music for Better Know Framework. Awesome. <laughs> All right, what do you got? Well, I think I used this on the tablet show, oh. but I don't know as if I did on .NET Rocks. I can't remember which one I did. However, I've recently utilized it, and uh, I thought it would be a good fit with uh, Steven as well. So if you go to tinyurl.com slash QJS, Q-U-E-U-E-J-S. So this is uh, Steve Morley who wrote a Q implementation in JavaScript, and the compressed version is all of 632 bytes. It's wow. really small. And essentially what he's doing is he's using an array, but uh, as he says here, Qs can be implemented in JavaScript using arrays by using the push or unshift functions to add items to one end of the array and the shift or pop functions to remove them from the other. This method, while simple, is inefficient for large Qs as the shift and unshift functions move every item in the array. QJS is a simple and efficient Q implementation for JavaScript whose DQ function runs in amortized constant time. As a result, for larger queues, it can be significantly faster than using arrays. So the interesting idea is that he doesn't actually, you know, shift and move stuff in the array. He just grows the array. So the idea is that, yes, you're going to grow and grow and grow the array. Right. But you're going to be, you know, nulling the the elements at the end of it and continue to add to it. Okay. So, so you know, because memory is going to be, you know, memory for an array anyway is going to be uh, more uh, readily available than memory for the objects. That you're and, and shuffling everything that's in the array doesn't make sense because then you're rewriting yeah. everything in memory. That's right. Okay. Yeah. So like it, it actually works more. It's a trade-off, but, you know, for performance, this works with really large... Right. And and I've actually implemented it and and uh, saved me a heck of a lot of uh, problems and headache. Um, I was implementing a, a thing where I had a lot of images in memory mm-hmm. at one time, and lo and behold, you load four or five hundred, two hundred k images, and you don't clean them up. Guess what happens? Yeah, uh, you run out of memory. Oh snap! That's yeah. what happens. Oh, <laughs> and event- yeah, eventually the operating system goes you out of the pool. <laughs> out of the pool. And yeah, you, you basically. Yeah, exactly. So in order to manage that, um, I first tested it by just you know uh, setting my image after I was done with an image, setting the source to quote quote, and then setting the image actually to null. Right. And you know while that's fine, you still have all these array elements that you don't want to deal with. So. Just drop this queue in, implement a queue, and, you know, NQ and DQ and forget it. It's beautiful. No more array indexes. It's just, it just works like a champ. So there you go. That's awesome. Q.js. Uh, Stephen Morley, you're good. It's good stuff. No one learned to love it. Richard, who's talking to us? Um, you're going to love this comment because it directly relates to what you were just talking about. This is from show 919, which is the panel discussion we did at DevReach 
on uh, JavaScript libraries with uh, Phil Chapixi and uh, Dan Willeen and Justin Cyrils. Yep. And this is from Sai, who says, I enjoyed the discussion on JavaScript, but I disagree with Richard about memory leaks with spa applications. Uh-huh. I'm a web developer and manage a spa website for a call center. The website provides historical and real-time reports with a 30-second refresh rate. I tested our website, and after eight hours of running several real-time reports, the heap stayed the same. Yeah, this is because most memory leaks in the browser are caused by bad code and not a systemic problem with spas. If possible, we recycle our HTML elements instead of creating new ones. If data or events were attached to an element with jQuery, then we use the empty function to remove those links. Automatic garbage collection is built into the browsers, but sometimes it needs some help from the programmers to make it work correctly. And I think, you know, supporting your point yeah. is this idea that, yeah, what's ha- we've just gotten lazy in web sure. development because we know the page is going away in a, f- in a minute. Right. And now when you're starting to build pages that are going to persist for hours. Yep. You're back to the whole, you know, Windows Forms problems yeah. of You need to behave. Collection. Yeah. Just like your mama always said, clean up after clean yourself. Up. Be a good be a good person, you know. Yeah. Clean up after yourself. Yeah. So, Sai. Thank you so much for your comment. Completely agree. And we're yeah. certainly seeing it. I like the work that Carl's been doing on his project, showing exactly the same challenges yeah. that you were talking about. So a .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, just write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or on any of our mobile apps. We've got them for Android, iOS, Windows Phone 7 and 8, and Windows 8. And those apps were built by Diatom Enterprises. Who'd love to build you an app. Just go to DiatomEnterprises.com. And Richard, this is the show in which we announce our $5,000 winner. It is. So that's going to be coming up in the middle of the show. So don't miss that. Yes. All right. But before we go any further, I need to tell you that Pluralsight provides comprehensive developer training online with hundreds of hardcore developer training courses authored by MVPs and industry experts, releasing over 40 new courses every month and offering a free 10-day trial, 200 minutes of access with a wide range of topics, including coverage of iOS, Java, Android, web development, and pretty much anything you can think of on the Microsoft stack. Try Pluralsight today. Subscriptions start at just $29 a month. And with that, let us invite back to the show Steven Sanderson. He is an Azure developer from Microsoft, living and working in Bristol in the UK. He's sometimes an author and a presenter, but is mainly a programmer with interests in web development, security, and agile principles and practices. And Steve started the Knockout Project, an amazing web framework for enhancing your website's awesomeness. He regularly blogs and releases open source code at blog.stevensanderson.com. Welcome back. Well, thank you for having me on. It's always a pleasure to chat. Mr. Knockout, we like to call you. <laughs> yes, as everyone calls me. Uh, yeah. But, well, you know, this is uh, after it was abundantly clear that Silverlight was no longer sort of a viable cross-platform uh, thing you know uh-huh. a lot of people went to the web and knockout was there and that, that was that your sort of impetus you know how can i do xamily kind of stuff in a browser well that would be a nice history that we i could make up and say was true but no it's, no. it's actually not no um I, I have personally never really did any silverlight development really? so it's not that i was trying to recreate that i i don't even know what that would be like to be Isn't quite that honest. interesting i um I had uh, experience of working on some pretty large projects with very rich user interfaces that um, were doing pretty you know, serious single-page application stuff before people were using that term, as I'm sure mm-hmm. many of the listeners were. And it's just a, a, a pattern, uh, an abstraction over the MVVM pattern that was gaining popularity around that time. And okay. so you know, I just wrote the, the cleanest implementation that I could come up with, and it. it worked really well, and it seemed to go from there. It also speaks to this idea that good patterns are good patterns. Oh, yeah. It doesn't matter who built them with what tool. Exactly, right? yeah. This is a pattern that works, and, yeah. and, it's, and our current generation of development tools work with it really, really well. Indeed. So it's nice to see that, yeah, you can hop over to another platform, apply that pattern, and you have just as good a result, if not better. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. What, uh, what were you using? Uh, where were you implementing the MVVM pattern? As in what technology stack? Yeah, what technology stack? Um, we were building an ASP.NET MVC application, and we were using a lot of different JavaScript libraries on the front end there. And the, probably the, the, the biggest influence on our architecture at that time was the reactive extensions for JavaScript, um, RxJS. And yeah. that's a brilliant library. It's very, very clever. And it allowed us to construct this MVVM-type architecture that really helped us to manage complexity, and it worked really well. But there were just one or two aspects to 
the kind of um, syntactical difficulty that I found and having to, you know, define all the dependencies between my data explicitly. Right. And um, and that combined with some ideas about how that could be sort of automatically done for you as a developer, allowing right. you to work in a more declarative way is what led to the Knockout And idea. of course, now that Knockout was a huge success, uh, you know, then came Angular and oh, yeah. Durandal and all of these great... Uh, knockoffs, if you will. <laughs> well, yeah, I don't think it would be fair to call them all knockoffs. <laughs> well, no, but, but, you know, you've influenced a whole generation of, you know, developers. You I are think, the giant that they, they build upon. Yeah. That's very, very generous of you to say that, but <laughs> well, it isn't true, obviously. <laughs> so. I, I think I think there is a grain of truth in that. Yeah, though, well, I'm sure there's been some influence, yeah, but yeah. Angular itself was not, was built around the same time okay. as Knockout was, right. so I, I doubt that they specifically were trying to copy. I'm sure they've been inspired by some of the things we've done, as in some you know, as the reverse is also true, but sure, yeah. yeah, I wouldn't claim credit for that. Project. All right, well, that's fair enough, and uh, and you you really like what's going on in that space. Oh yeah, then, yeah, yeah. It's, it's brilliant. Yeah, I mean, yeah. there are there are quite a number of different frameworks now, and they appeal to uh, developers who want different levels of uh, control over their architecture. You know, some developers want to define every little bit of interaction. They want to combine thirty five different libraries in a particular way. Sure, and you know that there are libraries that work like that, and there and there are other developers that that want the one great framework that rules everything sure. and you know wherever you fit on that scale you know you can hopefully find something that that meets your needs there you know maybe the overarching thing here is the mvvm pattern maybe we should just be thanking martin fowler i think it was <laughs> yeah. his idea yeah. right I mean, well yeah i mean the mvvm is just a slight refinement of model view controller yeah, which very... you know goes back to the 70s and yeah you know and that in itself is merely a refinement of the idea of separating data and presentation yeah. which is an even more basic concept so it's it goes yeah, all I mean, the way back to SGML if you really want to go oh, that deep and dark, yeah. right? Yeah, back in the 1800s or whenever <laughs> SGML was first <laughs> When two put computer together. programmers were banging rocks together. Yeah, that's right. So we have talked to you about Knockout before, but what, what are you working on lately? Well, I am working for Microsoft, and I'm working on the Azure team as a developer. I spent a couple of years doing program management there, but then the, the lore of the code became too strong, so mm. I, I switched my job and I became a, a developer again. And now uh, I am working on the management interface for Windows Azure. Oh, so, nice. Uh, I'm sure you've seen the, the blue yeah, thing. I love it actually. Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, it's it's a it's a good project. And it's a great project. Yeah. Well, it's a great product. I mean, I use it all the time, and yeah. I, I really do appreciate how easy you made it. Good. Good. Yeah. What's the dev cycle like there? How often are you pushing features out to us? As uh, a, as it's a on a, a monthly cycle. Okay. So we um, it feels so short because like we we ship some code and then. And they were like, right, now what we're going to do? And we have uh, like a, a week's planning and then a week's implementation. And then, oh, we got to lock it down because the next release is coming. And, right. you know, it's like you've got to be really quick to get some feature out within the one month. A week of planning, uh, a week of coding, a week of testing, a week of deploying. <laughs> it's a bit like that. It's not, it's not truly like that because right. obviously people do long-lived features right. and they work in a separate branch. And, you know, all the things that you used to happen, it's just... Um, yeah, a one-month cycle for an, an organization as big as Microsoft sure. requires some pretty intense discipline and really uncompromising deadlines. It's like if you're if the cutoff for check-ins is 10 a.m. and it's 10.02, your code is not going to ship this month. Yeah, like, but don't worry. It's next month. It's not yeah. like you're going to wait half a year. That, yeah, so that that's a, a good point. But you can imagine the sense of pressure when it's 9.50 a.m. and you can't connect to the VPN. Right. And you're like, I need to check this in now. Yeah. So, we, yeah, you get really much more anxious about infrastructure when yeah. it's not cooperating <laughs> <Yeah>. with you. <laughs> yeah, but, exactly. Yeah, I just it's interesting to see these new development practices applied to an organization as vast yeah. as Microsoft. That yeah. you know you're going on an increasing cadence uh, and can keep pushing stuff out to, to all of us because it does yeah. seem like every time I open that console, yeah. there's something new. Well, there should be. Yeah, there's enough people working on it. Yeah. Can you tell me what technologies you're using in the, inside that console? I mean, what stacks you're using? You know, JavaScript libraries, things like that. Sure. Yeah. Well, we're we're using um, ASP.NET, obviously, sure. as our um, server side backend, yeah. and uh, we've got a whole load of different .NET technologies uh, in that, and all of the different parts of the the Azure portal. You know, like the websites part, the databases part, and so on. Um, they are uh, able to have a slightly different technology stacks. There's some level of independence there, so you know, there, there's some variation across it. Um, and on the front end, we're using a lot of libraries that you would know about and find familiar jquery being an obvious one okay um, we are using jquery yeah we are using jquery yeah you can if you do a view source on the thing you'll find it's in there um mm -hmm. you'll find knockouts in there that's used by quite a lot of different parts of the uh 
different segments of the UI using that. Sure. Um, there's some charting libraries that I can't even remember. But, yeah. uh, we're using Monaco, you know, the um, the online IDE that's right. been promoted a bit recently. No, so tell we, me about that. Visual Studio Online. Yeah, well, oh, oh, Visual sorry. Studio Online. Okay. It's, well, okay. I don't know about Visual Studio Online, but Monaco is... I don't even know if that's the name that we use for it publicly, but no, that's the code, the code editor. Game, yeah. um, that's the, um, the code editor that has... Uh, a very rich understanding of uh, your code. So particularly JavaScript, it's going to do a great job of supplying IntelliSense. Um, and you know, and that's built into the management console? Yes, it is. If you use... Um, it's not, just to be clear, it's not Visual Studio Online. It's, no, it's not it's, Visual Studio. It's, it's a, a lightweight It's editor. a code editor. So yeah. if anybody's heard of um, CodeMirror or Ace, which are very well-known open source code editors, right. it's it's like that, except that it's also... Uh, got pretty extensive understanding of language uh, semantics in the sense that it is like, properly parsing a syntax tree and able to provide really good IntelliSense right. over the, the code there. Um, and it, it works really nicely. Neat. It's, it's stable. You know, it works great across all browsers and so on. Well, and we use that in Windows Azure Mobile Services for the code editor. That was the first place it was deployed uh, in Azure. And I love um, that this is all modular. Like We're going to see this code appear in other places oh, yeah. as it's needed. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah it's, it's a really great team that's building that. That's really interesting stuff. Hmm. And what are you doing here with the GPU? <laughs> what are you up to? Okay, so I'm doing a talk here at um, NDC, the, the new developers conference. Um, <laughs> not the Norwegian developers conference, because we're in London. And Maybe um, you should call it the new London developers conference. <laughs> oh, no. <Yeah>? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, what are you talking about? <laughs> Who knows? Um, anyway, I'm going to be speaking about um, WebGL and GPU programming within the browser. Okay. And um, this is just a sort of personal interest of mine. It's something I've been playing with pretty um, intensively for about the last six months or something. Mm -hmm. And it's just really cool. And, and not enough web developers seem to realize that that you can do this. Like last time I visited the rest of my team in Redmond, I told them that I was going to do this talk. And I was saying, oh, yeah, I'm going to be going on about mainly how you can write GPU code in a C-like language. And it runs inside the browser and it works without any plugins and it works on all the major browsers. And every person in the room apart from one said, no. We don't believe you. There's yeah. no way that you can That's write C. Impossible. You can't write C like code inside a browser without plugins. Um, you know, but of course you can. You know, people just haven't quite caught on to the fact that yeah. the WebGL provides that facility. And and yeah, it's shipping now, and you can do some really. So cool is WebGL with that. a library? WebGL is a, f a feature of of the web technology stack now. Just like you can think that you know being able to do AJAX requests is a feature. You know, it's a, or CSS is a feature. It's um, the ability to uh, build on top of the uh, the underlying OpenGL specification okay. for doing uh, graphics with GPUs. That's the primary use case, but you right. can also just use the GPU for other things if you are creative enough about it. Yeah, so, so I mean, normally when I think of WebGL, I think about ways to draw yeah. vector graphics really Absolutely. efficiently. Yeah, and that's that's totally the primary use case okay. for WebGL. Um, and so if you want to write, write your code directly on the WebGL APIs, then you will be supplying your own uh, fragment shaders and your own vector shaders, which are the bits of code that run on the GPU to uh, translate the um, geometrical description of a scene into a set of pixels right. on a canvas. Um, and you would have to use some really wacky APIs that would, I suppose they were designed by people who really understand graphics cards very well and thought that everyone else does as well. It, it'll but, be easy. <laughs> yeah, but it, it's, uh, it's not straightforward to write directly on the WebGL APIs. And mm. I, I have tried it and it's like you need to work in terms of... Um, uh, frame buffers and uh, array buffers, and then you need to get the pointers to the variables that you want to set, and then you need to compile and link the programs, and and you have to do a in lot a of stuff. Yeah. So well, you call gl.compile and pass it a program instance, and that tells the thing to compile your code and give it to the GPU. Here's so, a question wow. for you: yeah. I, Have you tested this like on a Raspberry Pi, on a very <laughs> small device? On a Raspberry Pi. Well, I I mean. If you were able to run a, a modern browser on your Raspberry Pi, then I don't oh. see any reason why. So we um, would absolutely run on a smartphone. Well, yes and no. I mean, it will. WebGL is well supported on Android. It's not uh, a facility exposed by current versions of iOS, oh, unfortunately. Okay. Um, the the device... there are GPUs there, but I guess oh, yeah, you, yeah. it's all about the library. Well, the the well, if we just take iOS. Um, people who've jailbroken their devices have found that they can f toggle a switch and then suddenly they get WebGL support. Oh. So clearly it's there, yeah. but you know it's not 
Apple's and chosen not to expose it. Indeed, yeah. So I think it's the, what is it, the Chromium browser that is the most modern one you can run on the Raspberry Pi, I think. Okay. I don't so know what... So it has to support OpenWebGL? Well, OpenGL is the underlying technology stack for, for the graphics card and the okay. way that you know the operating system interacts with that. And WebGL is a wrapper around that. So whether or not this Chromium for Raspberry Pi correctly uh, supports its own graphics card in the hardware and makes it work i, I couldn't tell you either yeah. way but theoretically it, apparently you know. uh, right there is some stuff out there people are talking about it okay so yeah. i guess i guess we got to get to the point which is yeah. besides rendering 3d yeah. objects on a canvas yeah what would you do with a gpu well if if you've got a, a massively parallel processor that is really good at floating point operations right. and you can just churn through millions and millions of them per second yeah then what kind of problems can be modeled in that kind of way. So, you know, if any kind of multimedia processing stuff could be done that way. So not just necessarily rendering, uh, you know, triangles and filling them in, but also you could take uh, video data and do things like noise reduction on that, or you could take audio data and you could apply various types of audio effects in a a highly scalable way. Um, Or even if you get outside the multimedia field, if you've got anything that, involves a large enough amount of data and the operation you want to perform on it is naturally parallelizable, then, you know, you're good to go with that. You're talking about peer computing distributed through the browser. Well, that's, that would be an additional level of abstraction on top of it. So, yeah, within WebGL and the GPU, you've got massive parallelism on one physical piece of hardware. But, yeah, there's nothing to stop you paralyzing a task across multiple machines if you can if you've got a way of distributing that workload let's head around the idea that the gpu is this crazy multi-cell computer that right. does a lot that can do lots of simultaneous simple floating program operations yeah yeah that's right and it can be a real challenge for for developers who are not familiar with that to come up with how they would model familiar algorithms in this kind of way because you can't literally just write a series of if else statements oh, oh you can literally do that but it's not going to perform any better than right, right, sure. the cpu you need to be able to model your algorithm in a way that is is highly parallel so um to take an ex- example of something i'm going to uh, show in my uh, demo at this conference tomorrow uh, a computer vision problem can be modeled in this kind of way. Like if you want to connect to someone's webcam and look out through the webcam and see what objects are in the scene and identify, oh, I see you've got this book in your room and I see you, you're holding an apple or whatever. Like, I don't know what business problem that solves, but maybe right. it solves some business problems. I'm sure the NSA then, would be very interested. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right, yeah, tracking apple use statistics. Um, but yeah, no, you could do some cool stuff. Imagine eBay. If you if you went to eBay and you went, I want to s- sell this object. I don't know what it is. And you hold it up and it goes, oh, yeah, that's this particular DVD. The current market price for that is this. And, you know, that would be pretty cool. And there's no reason why you couldn't uh, implement some kind of computer vision algorithm. Yeah, do uh, the recognition on the local device. Yeah, yeah, totally. Don't, don't have yeah. to haul, it, haul that video stream up to the, to yeah. the cloud to solve that problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, we keep forgetting just how much horsepower we've got locally now. Yeah, indeed, yeah. And there will always be cases where it's actually better to, you know, actually hire a a farm of GPU machines in a a server center somewhere. But that could be very expensive. And, you know, maybe as an experimental feature, you want to just do that on the client. Right. Well, man, talk about easy to distribute. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Bring your own hardware. Your customer's bringing the hardware to you. So, yeah. Yeah, anybody... Instead of having to install apps on them, if you wanted to do this web of machines, sure. just go to a page. We'll give you a piece of the workload oh, and yeah, run it on totally. your GPU That's and send it, it yeah. back. And uh, yeah, the nefarious thing is that maybe you don't even know about it and you're just yeah. mining bitcoins for someone. And uh, <laughs> yeah, That's interesting. <laughs> oh, you're evil. You get here. Yeah. <laughs> There's a whole other level of of creating like online game sites. So people just hang out on that page. Yeah. In the that's meantime, right. you're utilizing their computing resources. You're, yeah. you're describing Facebook, I think. <laughs> <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> oh, my goodness. That is interesting. Yeah. Thinking dark thoughts now, Steve. This is where you took me. Just like that. Straight to the darkness. Yeah. Although, to be fair, a problem like Bitcoin mining or password cracking is not something that's very well suited to WebGL today because uh, currently we're on WebGL version 1.0. And that's um, a kind of uh, a web wraparound OpenGL ES 2.0, which is another spec that um, has got fairly limited set of operations that you can do. So it doesn't have any sensible way of modeling 
uh, bitwise operations. Like if you just want to do an XOR between two values, right. you have to literally write an algorithm for that yourself. You can't just say something XOR, something else. You can imagine that's not going to perform too well. And since that kind of thing is the the backbone of like hashing and Bitcoin mining and such, right. it's very hard to do that. But WebGL 2.0 um, implements a whole set of extensions uh, which allows operations like you know efficient uh, bitwise operations. So uh, a lot of additional capabilities are going to emerge fairly soon. It, it, yeah, it, it's it's is it the the Kronos group that's doing the WebGL specs. That's correct. They are. Yeah. yeah. And so 1.0 is actually implemented. Like yes, it's that's out totally. in the wild. That's in all current versions of major browsers major except browsers. for Safari. Um, but yeah, IE Chrome and Firefox, IE 11 only, unfortunately. Okay. So obviously pretty cutting edge there. But um, yeah, I mean, adoption is only just going to go in one direction. So yeah. I guess the question is how long before 2.0 shows up? Yeah. There are already experimental implementations of that for both Firefox and uh, for WebKit as well. Okay. So yeah, if you want to start writing some code, you can totally do that. It's just that people visiting your website are not going to be able to run it yet. So right on the bleeding edge of this thing would be... Stop, you know, if you try to get away from the nefarious uses, I can see fairly silly ones like just being able to manipulate a video stream on oh, yeah. the fly. Yeah. You know, your Definitely. whole hovering mustache and, and, <laughs> and hat stuff that we're already seeing versions of. Yeah, yeah. You take not, this a whole other level. Yeah. So we've already talked about, you know, uh, C sharp code running on the GPU, but oh, yeah? not in JavaScript. I mean, yeah. It's just so freaking cool. It is, but it's not JavaScript. So the, the code that you're writing inside your GL shaders is not resemblant of JavaScript oh, it's syntax. Not. No. Okay. So um, the GL shader code that you would write for the browser uh, looks a lot like C. You know, it's all these uh, void functions, and um, okay. it, it's quite a limited subset of what C programmers would be used to. So there are no pointers in the normal sense mm. of the word, um, and you can you can do structs, but you know they don't. I don't know if you can do union types. So you know, it's quite limited there, but it's limited in a very special way that means that it can run efficiently on the GPU. Is there any kind of functional programming aspect to it? Functional programming, um, I. Not really. It's it's sort of actually a very procedural kind okay. of uh, of code. I so, look, at, it looks like C. Yeah, it really it does. does. Mm. It does. Yeah, and okay. you're writing it in the browser. Yeah, completely. Yeah. So, so you get back to your original claim. I'm going to write C in the browser without a plugin. Yeah, <laughs> pretty much. Pretty much. Yeah. I mean, if it's you have to approach the your coding in a very different way. You have to understand that the GPU is not one CPU. You know, right. it's a it's a stream processor. Um, there's this whole single instruction, multiple data execution model, which which means that when you've got, say, uh, a group of 32 threads, uh, each of those threads can't do independent things. They all have to be executing the same instruction simultaneously, but on different even, data. even though they've got different data that they're mm. working with. So, um, so it means that, yeah. So, like for example, if you want to write an if-else statement, you've got to be very careful about that because what if some of the threads want to go in one direction through the if-else branch and some of them want to go in a different direction? Well, you know, that doesn't naturally fit into a single instruction multiple data model. So the way that the GPU solves that is that it's going to run both halves of the branch, or run the if part and then the else part. And for all of the threads that are meant to be in the if part, they will be turned on and the others will be turned off and then vice versa for the other I, half. I'm just trying so, to wrap my head around that yeah. single instruction multiple data, it's usually the other way around. And, and just what, why is that? Well, the reason why is that it's cheap to build hardware that, that paralyzes in that way compared with a CPU. Uh, you know, a current CPU is a multiple instruction, multiple data kind of model. We've got literally different physical pieces of hardware that are executing completely independent pieces of code. But the, the manufacturer and design of this sort of thing, the economics of it are such that we can only get probably in the physics of it are such that we can only get like eight cores or something like that onto current generation hardware. But the the GPU is uh, operating at a much higher level of parallelism. Right. And so it needs a different kind of architecture to the way that the, the thing is built and operates. When you get back to what was it intended for, yeah. it was intended to apply uh, a, cla a, a, a fog effect. Well, over, top sort of thing. Of, over yeah. top of a lit surface, right? Like yeah. you, you think about the math involved in, okay, I'm going to create a, I have a surface that is at this angle and I'm putting a point of light from over here and now I do the ray tracing to figure out how that surface is going to be illuminated Indeed. and then, you know, put a fogging effect over it. That means many times manipulating many pixels with the same equation yes, exactly. over and over, and over again. And yeah. that's what these kinds but of the, processes were built for. But you mentioned branching though. Yeah. yeah that, that's naturally going to happen. It will happen. In an algorithm. Yeah, and so... You will have to have some branching, probably in any non-trivial shader code. But sure. you have to understand the performance implications of that. Now, if you're 
if you understand um, the characteristics of your algorithm, it might be such that all of the spatially located, spatially similar positions of uh, the pixels on the screen are going to follow the same path yeah. through the the else branch. Yeah. In which case, the entire group of threads is not going to be slowed down. You're fine. Okay. But if your algorithm involves things just randomly taking different paths through the branches, then it will perhaps get very slow. Yeah. Hey, Richard, you know what time it is? It must be the happiest time. It's the happiest of happy I mean, times. Yes. That's right. It's time to give away $5,000 to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But before I tell you who the winner is, let me tell you that this episode of .NET Rocks is brought to you by Telerik Icinium which lets you develop, test, and publish iOS and Android apps from a single code base using only HTML5 and JavaScript, all from within Visual Studio. The capabilities include comprehensive backend as a service in the cloud, integrated support for Kendo UI and jQuery mobile, as well as integrated testing and deployment capabilities. All this makes Icinium a robust end-to-end mobile app development platform for .NET developers. Telerik Icinium is available on a subscription basis and is now part of the Telerik DevCraft Ultimate Collection. Start a free 30-day trial of Icinium with support at icinium.com slash DNR, and that's I-C-E-N-I-U-M dot com. And don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. Now, who's our big winner? Our big winner is Andy Smith. Awesome. Now, we called Andy to tell him he was the winner. And let's just hear that phone call now. Andy, is that you? It is. Hi, Carl. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Uh, where are you exactly in the world? Uh, the southwest tip of Wales in the UK, Pembrokeshire. Awesome. So your name was picked at random from our special randomization technology, and you're this year's winner. What do you think of that? I'm pretty chuffed. Chuffed. I, I love that word. <laughs> So, so what exactly would you like? I mean, you get your pick. Uh, we like we ask all our guests, what would you do with five thousand dollars? What, what have you decided to uh, that you want? Um, well, I need to get into tablet development, so I'm thinking something along the lines of an iPad and a Samsung tablet. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess I need a Mac in there somewhere as well if I'm going to do it properly. Right. Um, my develop my development laptop is getting old and creaky so another one of them okay that would be awesome so you opted for an inspiron 17 7000 series hd laptop with touch uh-huh awesome and mm-hmm. i see you also want an apple ipad air 64 gig yeah i haven't jumped on that bandwagon yet so i'm quite keen to see what it's all about to be honest very good uh and on the android side a galaxy tab Samsung Galaxy Tab 7-inch, a Tab 3. That's right. Christmas has come really early. Right. And uh, and then an Apple Mac Mini i7. Yeah. Very good, very good. And uh, then, of course, you want the uh, uh, Telerik Icinium bundle and also the Xamarin bundle. We're going to see what we can do about getting you those as well. That's amazing. Thanks, Carl. I don't know what to say. Well, that's great. So... Just real quick, um, what did you think when you got the email that you won? Did you think the, you know, oh, no, Nigerian scammers? Or did you say, oh, my God, I can't believe this is real. Somebody's playing a joke on me. Or what did you think? Yeah, bit of either. The wife certainly thought it was a scam. <laughs> um, I, I thought the chances were relatively slim because I doubt there's too many scams pretending to be Carl and Richard, really, to be honest. So I was just amazed. I never win anything, so I'm really chuffed. Oh, that's so great. Well, when you get it all set up, take a picture and send it to us, will you? Will do. Will do. Definitely. All right, Andy. Thank you so much. Thanks a million, Carl. It's amazing. All right. And thanks for being a great fan. And we'll see you next time. So there you go. We actually deliver. And as Andy said, you know, his wife thought we were just another Nigerian scammer email. (laughs) And it happened the last year, too, with Rob Corbett. You know, his buddies were like, oh, that yeah, can't be that real. that can't be real. Yeah. <laughs> nope, it's real. It's real. We really do it. You really have to pay attention when we, uh, when we send you email because we're not messing around. Well, if you don't know what we're talking about, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the fan club. 
It only takes a few minutes. We have thousands of listeners all over the world. And uh, every show we give away a Telerik DevCraft Complete Collection, except for this one, right. in which we gave away $5,000 worth of technology. That hap- that'll happen every year. So every next year. Christmas, you could be the winner. That's right. But we should still ask the question to Steve. Absolutely. If you had $5,000, Stephen, right now to spend on technology, what would you buy? Um dollars what's that in proper money is that like a shilling and two <laughs> halfpennies or something like, let's say uh, 2700 pounds <laughs> that's a couple of bob <laughs> <laughs> right. 2700 pounds about the price of a hamburger in london <laughs> oh okay <laughs> yeah well of course i would i would purchase a lot of windows phone and surface products and accessories and um spoken yeah. like a true blue <laughs> boy those implants just sunk right <laughs> yeah, into your head so, didn't they yeah. well, i have actually it's not easy to spend that much on that hardware, right? I mean, the Surface Gear is pretty inexpensive. Yeah, that's true. Pounds, yeah. 700 pounds for the fancy one. Yeah, yeah. Phones are cheap, are even cheaper. So how you could buy them for the whole street. Yeah, be very popular. Yeah, you could buy them in a in a you know gift bag in a pack so, of twelve. So, uh, what do you think? Google Glass, three uh, D printer. I mean, the the new Maker Bots look pretty cool. Oh, that's true. Yeah, I, yeah. I have been getting into some three D stuff actually. I I bought um an Oculus Rift dev kit earlier oh, in the year, which I've been nice. playing with a lot. So I, I'm sure I could uh, build myself an entire 3D rig with one of those, um, what are they called, uh, treadmill things. And, yeah. Um, yeah, do Create the whole that thing. whole virtual environment yeah, for yourself. Why not? Yeah, That's interesting, yeah. There's been a few folks who have been playing with sort of omnidirectional treadmills with, oh, the, yeah. with the barrier around it yeah. so you don't run off of it. Because you, when you wear an Oculus, you can't see anything else. Yeah, like, I know. You're, you're yeah. gone. Yeah. Have you seen one uh, Autodesk's 123D? Oh, I've heard of this, but remind me what this is. So, first of all, you know about um, uh, Connect for Windows Fusion, which uh, lets you scan an object, basically hold up the Connect, and then it gives you a 3D model of that thing. And they even go so far as to let you scan an entire room, and then you have a wireframe, which you can then add shaders yeah. to, and you can basically use that in the game. Oh, cool. Yeah, so so these guys, uh, 123D is a free thing and you can basically use an iphone or or a camera you know a regular phone okay to just take a video uh or take pictures surrounding something yeah and then you've got a 3d object and that you can use in this guy and then print it out on a MakerBot or whatever. Oh, sweet. Yeah, or the, import it into your webgl application import it into your webgl application spin it around in yeah. a browser so there you go cool. so one two three that's at uh one two three d app.com and my daughter Emmy told me about this. She's at uh, uh, design school. She's going into industrial design. She's at Rhode Island School of Design. Cool. Yeah, this is ties into your whole conversation. This whole conversation about what browsers can do these days with the amount of horsepower that's in that, that oh, yeah. GPU. Yeah. So they, this idea of just being able to capture a room rendered in 3D inside of the browser, add objects to it. Like, although that's still really is the GPU. What it's intended for. I'm still thinking about unintended uses of a GPU. Oh, yeah, yeah. So they're just the ser- serious computation. Well, hopefully the, the opportunities to do some really interesting computations are going to expand when WebCL becomes available. That's the Web Compute Library. Right. And that's built on top of OpenCL. Um, and that exposes a different set of underlying primitives. So it gives you uh, more control over the, the threading model that you're going to use uh, and means that you don't have to express everything in terms of textures and uh, you know coordinates and pixels and so on. Right. Um, so that yeah, definitely, it's a much more natural programming uh, model for that kind of thing. Um, you know, in some ways, you're kind of cheating when you said, oh, "Hey, I'm going to do this kind of low-level programming in the browser yeah. without a plugin," because it is actually a plugin. It just comes with the browser. Well, okay, only in the same sense that the address bar is a plugin, or, right? You know, it's because plugins are bad. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Sorry, I forgot about that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I appreciate the overarching idea that uh, they became the sort of definitive uh, malware vector. Oh, yeah, sure. You know, that the average mortal can't decide because they've had, they've clicked OK so many times on so many things. Yeah. They have no ability to assess that what's coming into the browser now is an exploit versus a real service. Yeah. Uh, what else do we do? Like, How else do we deal with this? Well, I, I think the way that the technology has progressed has has improved matters because, you know, the web uh, technology stack right now um, has become so much uh, richer than it was a few years right. ago in terms of our ability to do, um, just to run code really fast. You know, modern JavaScript engines are really fast. Sure. Yeah. We can do multimedia stuff, both with WebGL and with web audio. So, I mean, and, the point being, yeah. we just don't need 
the point so being the light that, flash anymore. Well, yeah. yeah, I mean, the code that even if the stuff it can still be regarded as a plugin, like if you want to think of WebGL as a plugin, fine. But at least it's been built by the browser yes. developers themselves, yeah. and it's not by some third party. Right. So sure. you know, there's a, a much bigger company's got its reputation on the line there to to get it right the first time or to issue fixes in a matter of hours right. if something goes wrong. Um, compared with the situation before, where people would just install any, you know, any old thing. Yeah. So. Well, and and uh, I don't miss not having Flash updated every single time I reboot my machine. Oh, yeah. I yeah. don't miss that even a little bit. Yeah, I I totally. It's kind of a that. virus in and of itself. Isn't <laughs> yeah, it? Kind of. Okay. <laughs> yeah. It's just another example of plug-in malware. Yeah. yeah. Although if if they just made it update silently, then maybe we well, would. Well, and the latest version does do that. Oh, does it? It's Fine. just that they, they've created such a relationship with the customer now that nobody's willing to let them do anything silently. Ah, uh, yeah. Okay. You know, it's like you've got yourself into a box here where yeah. I don't trust you and I don't like you. Yeah. And that, and and it turns out when you get it off of the machine, so that you don't have that option in your browser anymore, there's a lot of websites that look really nice. <laughs> so I've I recently spent some time with Mere Mortals in their in their. Uh, laptops trying to help them you know make their laptops run faster oh, right so average number of toolbars installed oh per you, you have no idea how ah. many how many toolbars and, <laughs> and search helpers quote unquote yeah. yeah anything that's like a search helper well yeah they're basically just looking yeah. at what you search and targeting you it's malware is there, is there like a file new search helper project template for visual yes, studio currently <laughs> yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, so so the first thing I did with my friend, I I, I uninstalled about twelve yeah. search search related, you know, taskbar helpers. I can't uh, tell you how many times. I, well, you know what it is. We're all in the same boat. It's Christmas time. Yeah, uh, we yeah. are traveling around to friends and family. Yep. And what's the first thing that happens every time you walk in fix the room? Fix my computer. Fix my computer. Oh, I'm so glad you're here. Yep. Yeah, and even if they don't say it, you've got this sort of nagging awareness that. I, I just started putting together a kit. I right? just load up a couple of USB keys with all of the stuff to clean up machines yep. so that I could do it quickly. Plug it in, get it started, go have a drink. Well, good for you if you can do it. Like, <laughs> one of the last times I tried to do it, there's some well, the, vicious toolbar that would not go away. Well, no, they, you know, you're, but you hit it on the other thing. With the moment that you actually do anything that machine, that's now your machine. You're responsible <laughs> right. for it that's forever. True. Yeah. Right? So, uh, yeah, calls in the middle of the night. Yeah. I, I, I ha I've handed out cards to my friend's computer store down the road. It's yeah. like, you know what? These guys can help you. Yeah. Well, that's a top career. Yeah. They, it, but he gets back to the average mortal's machine is seriously polluted. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah. We think we just don't feel like we have a problem because we have a pretty good handle on what's going on inside of our computer. Mm -hmm. And we've got yeah. the good sense of smell. The moment yeah. it does behave badly, mm -hmm. you're all over it. Plus, right? you reinstall your open system every six months because a new version has come out or sure. something like you're perpetually ripping machines apart. Yeah. I'm, I'm cooking mine with gamma rays by flying constantly. Yeah. So I need new computers regularly. And I have a chance to get them really corrupted because they're dead. <laughs> <laughs> but we get back to this original idea of, I think the movement to no plugins is going to save a ton of grief for yeah. a lot of average humans. It does help a lot. And of course, it's been accelerated very dramatically by the, the growth in lockdown mobile platforms yeah. where, where there are no plugin options anyway. Yeah. So. Not you that know. they actually locked them down. They just never built them. Well, yeah. And even if they had built them, yeah, yeah. they would not have been allowed on. So, yeah. yeah. I, I, I think Apple did us a favor by taking the stand. They did, yeah. It, although, yeah, everyone's still got their opinions about uh, their individual things that they're... And how they went about it. Yeah. And it's a the larger theme. I did a show on running as about more than two years ago now, talking with... Um, Mark Rusinovich, oh, yeah. and he said, you know, what's really what really happened with the tablet market, with this whole App Store marketplace, is we switched from blacklisting to whitelisting. Indeed, yeah. Right, so that you only, you can't put anything on this machine except what's in the approved store. Yeah. It's such a mixed thing, isn't it? Like, of course, there are benefits to the consumers about that, but there's this right. terrible danger of the loss of general purpose computing. Yes. And, yeah. Well, and I, and I just recognize, it's not for us. It's for the mortals. And it's for the guys who don't know how to clean And as long as it stays there. that way, yeah. that's great. But, yeah. you know, there's just this, yeah, conspiratorial fear that at some point some legislation yep. is going to come in and, and then it will be for us. Or it's well, and this is what I wonder is if because we've implemented this way now and we're dealing with the problem, we decrease the risk of legislation. Je legislation yeah. generally comes from pain. And if we didn't deal with this, if we were continuing to live in a malware world, yeah, you know, that's where you're going to get this blunt hammered legislation hey, as long as i you know if there's legislation that means there's a license right so i can go and probably take a test somewhere and get a license 
to operate my computer at its full capacity. <laughs> possibly, possibly. Uh, it's very, uh, very conspiratorial. Yes, but, it is. But I do, I do like this overarching idea of if it's good functionality, it should be part of the browser. Yeah. And I think we started to cultivate a, a culture and an, an environment now where the, the conversation today seems way healthier between the browser makers and these uh, various groups that are developing these standards. We're moving way faster. Yeah, yeah, stuff is coming in quickly, and um, yeah, and it tends to land in the hands of customers pretty quickly as right. well because we don't tend to have these multi-year upgrade cycles on browsers so much. Yeah, every time you close Chrome, you get a new version of Chrome. You do, yeah. We're on Chrome <laughs> 128,412 by now, so yeah. Yes. But the upside is you get the bits quickly. Yeah. And, uh, and and really quite seamlessly. Oh, yeah. So that uh, you, you can take advantage of these things that come down the path. So, yeah. th- I mean, this was purely a hobby project for yeah. you, dabbling right. around. Do you have a bigger goal in mind, something you actually want to get out into the field? Is there a knockout for, <laughs> for, for WebCL? For massively parallel CPUs. That's it. Um, no, I don't have a special end goal in mind, but you know, the, I, I like mathematical things, and uh, these kind of uh, graphics problems and parallelization problems uh, come down to fairly mathematical things, and there's a, uh, it kind of activates a, a part of my brain that's probably laying dormant for many years while I've been doing you know, database applications with, you know, .NET and JavaScript. Which, right, you know, right. that's great and everything like that, but it's just like I kind of want to flex some of the mental muscles as well a little bit. And, sure. and you know, highly uh, parallelized graphics pipelines are is a completely different business. And it's been a lot of fun. Yeah, totally uh, different yeah. way of thinking yeah. about the problem. It's just uh, I really like the idea of not thinking about it as graphics as all, but oh, yeah. as this whole cellular computing model. What yeah. kind of stuff can I render? Yeah. What kind of calculations could I do? You were yeah, mentioning that, you know, um, you're using this sort of C-like language yeah. to do all this stuff in. Is there a way that we can communicate with that layer via JavaScript? Yes, completely, yes. So um, if you're going to use uh, WebGL as it exists today, then uh, there are two main ways of getting data into the, the GL pipeline. And one of them is to pass in images, um, which WebGL calls textures. And so you would define, you know, well, let's say you're going to use a wrapper library like 3JS, which... 3.js, that is, which everybody who's using WebGL should probably at least try using because yeah. it provides fantastically clean abstractions on top of the, the difficult parts of WebGL. Um, and if you're going to use that, you can literally just say load a texture from a JPEG um, and then pass that data in. And then my code inside GL can uh, read the colors of pixels inside there. There you go. There, that, that's essentially programming in, in, in JavaScript. So yeah, so, so absolutely. You can use your familiar web dev tools to get your image data in, or you can programmatically construct an image yeah. in JavaScript and mm. then pass that in. So you've effectively passed in a massive array right. of, of data. Sure. Um, and then the other way is uh, the uh, GL programs can receive variables, which are known as uniforms. Um, uniform meaning that it's the same variable value for all the pixels. Okay. So uh, yeah, you can just set values on these uniforms and then uh, make use of them from inside your shader. Okay. And then when you want to get data back out the other end, it's basically a matter of uh, rendering that out onto a canvas and then reading pixel colors out of that. And and yeah, so regular three D developers now, you know, you'll recognize this environment. Oh yeah, I would hope so. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean, you can't exactly. As far as I'm aware, take the something like the Unity game development framework and just run it in JavaScript. Yeah, it's like, yeah, it's a bit more to it than that. There's yeah. a whole other side of this. As uh, I mean, I've worked with game programmers. They yeah. are a different species. Oh yeah, yeah. They think about problems very differently. Yeah. Getting them to build games in JavaScript. Yeah. Seems very odd. Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, there's certainly a big mismatch. And if you took a computer game programmer and asked them to build you a to-do list, they probably like just give you a blank stare and have no idea how to approach it. Whereas, you know, we churn out 10 of those an hour. Right. Um, where, and the reverse is exactly the, the same. You know, if you want to do shadow mapping or something like that, you'd have to go to your library and get some books or something. Yeah. But, you know, for, for a game developer... It's just a normal way to think. Yeah. That's the, it's, the funny part is that all of the other stuff in, in working in the web world is what would bother them. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the two pieces just don't intersect yeah. particularly well. And probably most games are not built in dynamic languages yeah, anyway. Yeah. So JavaScript sure. is going to be yeah. a little bit odd. They tend probably. to be pretty low level. Yeah. Every byte counts for them. Yeah, absolutely. And speed counts. Yeah. So uh, what's next for you? You got another knockout in your, in your belt there? 
Um, well, the knockout project itself is still going very strong. Yes. And, you know, the sure. community is really healthy. It, it there sounds and, like it's gotten um, away from you. Are you even dictator for life anymore <laughs> in that project? Um, I'm certainly one of the, the voices okay. in the project, but I'm not the mm. only one. And, yeah. and that's good. It, it wouldn't be healthy for one person to kind of right. set the agenda completely. So. Yeah, I think Linus would disagree with you. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay, well. He's the one who coined dictator for life. Yeah, well, okay, that works for him. It works for that project. Yeah, but I, um, I, I'm with you. Yeah. I love the idea that you don't have to be involved for a knockout to thrive. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And, and I want to be involved. You know, yes. it's still a project that I really enjoy, and, and I feel strongly about how that it should be great and that it, it shouldn't, you know, that it should get better over time. It shouldn't get worse, which right. is kind of the natural decay of projects as people everybody wants to make it to do something slightly different and you end up with five thousand different options that the developer yeah, has to configure and that giant yeah. swiss army knife yeah library absolutely. so yeah i'm i'm trying to be a, a sort of a voice of um that's trying to stick true to the the kind of principles of right. uh, the the elegance that it's always had. what actually um, extends this thing versus should be a different library entirely. yeah completely yeah. yeah and and there's so much good stuff that people do that that works great as plugins and everyone who builds a plugin initially thinks hey this should be integrated into In the, the core. core thing and and i totally appreciate the the desire to that you've done a useful thing and you think people are going to benefit and you want it to get out there and right. that's absolutely right for everybody to want their their stuff to be used and benefit people but yes. there's this whole trade-off there of you know how much is going to be in the core and and how much can't be so trying to manage that is is always fun um, but no, that's that's good, and I'm, and I'm happy still to be involved in that. And other than that, my my work keeps me pretty busy, and I've got a four week old baby now, so yeah, oh, there's, there's not a lot are, of time for um, you are up to your up to your whatever <laughs> yeah, in it. Exactly, yes. that's a whole other yeah. level of sleep that's deprivation. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. In fact, it's two children, so it's like a parallelism that you've got to kind of manage. Twins? Uh, no, no, one's two years old, and two year old, two point oh, and one month old. Yeah, lordy, yeah. Awesome. All right. Well, well, you need to make some more because smart people need to make more babies. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Take one for the team. Take another. <laughs> Take the third. That's right. Yeah. The poor Earth population shrinking problem that we need to solve. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Well, Stephen, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for having me on. You bet. We'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the FCC.